When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. You probably know Damon Hack from the Golf Channel, but I first knew him as a sports writer. Yes, one of those ink-stained guys. Damon was always prepared, thoughtful, personable, a good storyteller. No wonder he's become a trusted presence on television. We'll talk plenty of golf, but also go back to Damon's days behind the keyboard, back before TV lights lit his world, back when he was running around in the shadows with ugly scribes like me. Let's tee it up. Damon, it's very nice to reconnect again. Welcome to Pressbox Access. Todd, it's great to be with you. It's been quite some time, and I'm looking forward to catching up a little bit. Yeah, we're both a little older. I'm a little older than you, so I'll give you a break on that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much, buddy. I'm, 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 I feel like the, the gap is closing. At least it feels that way with the 11-year-old triplets. Oh, that's true. You're quite a busy man with the, you and your wife chasing those triplets around. But hey, I wanted to congratulate you not just on uh, your family uh, joy, but also 10 years at the Golf Channel. Uh, I can't believe it's been 10 years already this year. It's amazing. I, I used to, as a sports writer and a newspaper and magazine guy, I'd look at those TV guys, like, oh, look at those guys. They, they don't even know what they're doing. They're just stealing all our stuff and then repurposing it for for television. And now I'm a, I'm a talking head myself on the boob tube, Todd. And <laughs> it's been, it's been a good decade. Uh, and I have a, a whole lot more respect for, for television journalism than I did when I was working in the newspaper business. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. You know, I first knew you as a sports writer, you know, a guy that you were one of us, you know, one of those ink stained <laughs> wretches out yeah. there, you know, in the mustard stained t-shirt and <laughs> bad wardrobe. <laughs> Now you're on television, you're all sharp, you know, looking good, all sounding good. What kind of transition was that for you to go from being a writer for 16 years to all of a sudden going into television? It's still a transition, if I'm honest. Ten years in, I still feel new in some ways. I, I lean on my old uh, newspaper chops in terms of the, the love and appreciation I have for the written word and journalism and kind of how I got into this business originally you know, the, the mechanics are a bit different. You've got a television camera, you've got makeup mm -hmm. and people, you know, ironing your, your clothes for you, which is a little <laughs> bit odd. <laughs> like this flannel shirt that I'm wearing. Right? But I still try to I still try to tell stories and I try to uh, speak the way I write. And I still write, too, from time to time. I've been fortunate enough right. to to keep some of those chops sharp. I write for the Masters Journal. I've done that the last couple of years, writing pieces ahead of the Masters Tournament and occasionally write for golfchannel.com as well. Right. But it is different. You know, your energy level is important. Your look is important. You know, during commercials, someone will come up and 
fix your collar if it gets out, out of place. Didn't have to worry about that too much when you're on deadline, you know, at a, at a at an NBA game or or you know while you're you know kind of chasing down the the baseball or or football game. So it's a bit different in that way. But I still try to lean on on journalism and, and asking the who, what, when, where, why. Right. Well, we're going to talk a lot of golf because not only did, have you done it with the Golf Channel, you did it for 10 years prior to that with the uh, New York Times and, and Sports Illustrated. Uh, by the way, how is your golf game? You know, it's it's not as good as you'd think. People assume you work for Golf Channel and you're automatically, you know, shooting in the 70s. And I still have not even broken 80. I did play Pebble Beach a, a few weeks back at the Pure Insurance Pro-Am I played very well, which surprised me. Finished tied for second, came home, right. birdied the first hole I played, shot 86 in my most recent round of golf. So I, I'm, I feel like I'm starting to be a person who can shoot in the 80s, but that, that, that guy that can shoot in the 70s, that still seems to be a bit elusive for me at this point, 10 years in the golf channel notwithstanding. Well, I have a number in mind. I have sources. I know the number of the first time you played golf, what you shot. Do you care to share it with us? Uh, well, if I recall, it was 144. Um, <laughs> that, that, that That's was, it. That's the number. Your sources are Was that the front or the back? <laughs> that was thankfully both. Can you imagine if it was the front? But 144, and, and your sources, Todd, as they've always been, are impeccable. Your reporting skills. The buddy took me out to play. I had no idea... What I was doing, it was ugly, but I played well enough on maybe one or one and a half holes where I thought, this is fun. Uh, I want to try this again. But yeah, dude, you're right. 144 swipes right. at the golf ball. That's a, that's a pretty ugly afternoon. Hey, they pay you by the stroke, you know. I mean, you pay that <laughs> right. much money, you might as well get a lot of swings in. And, and listen, I, if anybody has seen me commit golf, I have no place to demean your own game, and you're now shooting in the 80s. My golf clubs are in my garage. They literally have cobwebs on them. Oh, man. Now, I'm going to take you back to your days as a sports writer. Back in those days at Sports Illustrated, the Times, Newsday, Sacramento Bee is where you started out. You, you covered quite a few things besides golf. The NFL, you did the NBA as a beat. Super Bowl, Olympics, NBA Finals. I think in Sacramento, you even covered the Roller Hockey International. Is that right? Man, man, you, who are these sources? This is like a, a this is your life episode and you're, and you're batting a thousand. I dressed up as a mascot uh, for a story for the Sacramento Bee, Ricky the River Rat. Where Ricky I, I, the know, River Rat, I, mean, I love it. <laughs> I mean, this was like my my attempt at being George Plimpton, you know, and, I, you know, what's it like uh, to be a mascot for a night at a roller hockey international game in Sacramento, California? And I wrote this kind of first person, you know, account of spending a night as this six foot tall rat in this musty <laughs> helmet and, you know, running around. And at first they put me on roller blades, but I was so unsure and unsteady on my feet that I said, you know, you better put your tennis shoes back on and just run around the rink, which is what I did. And people were yelling at me, feed the rat and saying all these different things in the, in the stands. And I'm trying to like look cool. I know I look like a fool, but it was, it was, you know, it was kind of talking about getting out of your comfort zone and just kind of saying, Hey, you know what? This is the assignment. My, my great sports editor at the time, Steve Blust, I'll never forget when he called me into his office and said, what do you think about doing a, a night as Ricky the River Rat? And, and what am I going to say? I'm like, I'm like probably 24 or 5 at the time. I'm like, hey, let, let's, let's get it on. 
Well, if you looked like a rat, you looked like a lot of sports writers, and you covered the 49ers for the Sacramento Bee as a beat in the late 1990s. Now, this is after Bill Walsh, after George Seifert, uh, but Steve Young is still there. Jerry yeah. Rice is still there. So it's still a very talented team. Um, what did you learn as a young reporter being around an NFL team on a day-to-day basis? Gosh, you want to talk about a great incubation period for me in terms of the quality of the riders who were on the beat. And I can like name everyone, really. It was Ira Miller, a legendary rider with the San Francisco Chronicle. You had Clark Judge, Sean Crumpacker mm-hmm. uh, with the San Francisco Examiner. You had Brian Murphy and Matt Mayoko and Kevin Lynch and Lowell Cohn. I mean, these were giants of, of Bay Area, San Francisco riding. So I had not just a a wonderful group of colleagues and competitors as well. And then you open up that locker room and it was like legends of the game that expect you to have done your homework and ask good questions. Steve Young, right. Jerry Rice, uh, Tim McDonald, Merton Hanks, Gary Plummer, Ken Norton Jr. Right. Uh, these were, you know, Chris, Chris Dolman, the late, great Chris Dolman was there um, who taught me a pretty tough lesson one time. <laughs> I think back to those days, it was probably like a Wednesday or in the locker room. And as you know, there's a bench that kind of lines the inside of the, of the locker room, right? Kind of there's the lockers and then a couple feet, there's, there's like a bench where the players sit. Right. So we're all around Chris Dolman's locker one day and I'm feeling good about myself. I put my foot on the bench, just kind of like, you know, we're all got our tape recorders out and I'm kind of leaning up against the bench and my foot's on the bench and... Mm-hmm. He looks at me and he says, this is our house. Can, can, you, can you take your foot off that bench? And I was like, oh, well, okay. And I, and I put my foot down and I, I was a little bit like, you know, Chris Dolman, not a small man, and didn't right. want my foot on, on the bench that sat in front of his locker. And I was a little bit embarrassed and a little bit bummed out about that. But then later on, like, we actually became, after he left the league and after, you know, I wasn't covering anymore, we I bumped into him at a Super Bowl one year. He was on the verge of getting inducted into the, Hall of Fame. We had lunch. He said, Damon, I'm not going to get the votes. There's no way. I'm just not going to be inducted. I'm, I'm not feeling good. And then a couple of days later, he finds out he is going to be inducted. And what did you learn from when he said, get off our furniture? Yeah, like this was this was their house. They, they considered the locker room their their kind of domain. And, and I, I, I kind of it almost felt like an uncle telling me, you know, walking into his house. Oh, don't you know, don't put your foot on, on the furniture. That's not how I looked at it. I don't think he was being mean. I don't think he was being, um, you know, brusque or rude about it. He, he, he didn't, like, put his finger in my chest or mm-hmm. – in fact, he's intimidating is that he's a, is one of the greatest pass rushers of all time. <laughs> and right. I know what he does on Sunday. So that was more my perception probably. But I think he was just saying, hey, you know, when you come in here, keep your feet on the ground. You have a job to do. You're in here for the 45 minutes or or the hour a lot of time that we were given. And mm-hmm. – you know, you know, let's let's have a respectful relationship, and you know, you know, like be a pro, right? Be a pro, exactly. Right. And I was, and as you know, I was very young and and feisty and feeling good about myself in my twenties on this beat of thirty and forty, and in some cases, fifty year old riders. Um, and here I am, you know, definitely not a hot shot, but young and hungry. And it was just a good reminder. Hey, you know what? I have to build interpersonal relationships with these players and I have to build their trust. Mm-hmm. And that comes from the stories that I write and also my behavior. And there was another little run in I had with um, a young offensive lineman named Tim Hanshaw. Mm-hmm. And this was during my first ever training camp and Tim Hanshaw was trying to make the team. 
and it's a preseason game. And I write that uh, Tim Hanshaw missed the block and, um, and Steve Young almost got decapitated. Mm. That, was, that was my description. And I'm thinking this is a wonderful description, active, active verbs and very, very compelling to the, to the reader. And Tim Hanshaw, the next day, he sees the story because we're all at that point, um, the, the Niners are training in Rockland, which is a suburb of Sacramento. So they're seeing the Sacramento Bee. And he's like, decapitated? Decapitated? He didn't almost get decapitated. I missed the block. Why do you have to say decapitated? Mm. And I was like, you know, Tim, I'm, I just, that's how I saw it. You know, I didn't really back down. I said, I just, I had to write it how I saw it, is, is right. what I said. And he kind of shook his head and walked away. And it just, and it gave me some perspective. You know, mm. he's a guy, a kid fighting for his job. And I'm trying to find some electric, good, active writing. And, I still think it was a good description. It might have been a little exaggerated. Obviously, Steve Young wasn't going to be decapitated, but um, it just gave me a little bit of perspective of what what the player is thinking about. It, it is and, an and active word now. Decapitation an, is an active it word. It is an active word. <laughs> NFL's a rough game, and if we're honest, Steve Young did deal with concussions, and, and, and especially in the 1990s, was one of those first players who was really concerned about what the damage of right. hits were doing. So I think that was probably part of the, the reason I chose that word as well. In fact, I was at the game where Steve Young was uh, knocked out for the final time. It was a missed block by Lawrence Phillips and Aeneas Williams on Monday night in Arizona knocked, knocked him basically cold for a little while. And, and that was the last time Steve Young played, played football. So, you know, the, the relationship you make, the, the choice of words, it's a dance, as you know, as a beat writer yourself and how you have to deal with these players over an entire season and sometimes over 5, 10, 15 years if you cover the beat and if the players are on that team for such a long time. You know, Young was at the end of his career. Rice was kind of getting up there. Um, you're a young guy. They're in different parts of their own career. What was that like to deal with those type of guys, Young and Rice especially? Yeah, I, I was no question intimidated. I just didn't feel like I had the the depth of knowledge or comfort that a lot of my peers did. I was one of the few writers in his first year in 97, which was my first year on the beat full time. And Rice and Young were such established players and had such great relationships already with the Ira Millers and the John Crumpack, John Crumpackers of the world and the Lowell Cones uh, of the world and the Clark Judge. I mean, I, I just, I didn't have that, gift of gab with them where, where I could talk about other things. It took me some time. Like I'd say mm -hmm. toward the end, like I was on the beat in 98 again and in 99 and toward the middle and end of my time, like I could talk to Steve Young. I found out through just hard work and, and, and observation, he was a fan of, of Negro league baseball hats. Really? And so, yeah, yeah. And you're like, oh, how, how about that? Like he started bringing like Homestead gray hats and different, hats into his locker and I noticed that and, and that struck a conversation for us that was outside they don't always want to talk about football you know exactly, they, they, right. they, they you know what kind of music do you like what kind of food do you like you're a Negro League baseball official like you can't just be about you know what do you think about the Packers coming into town they, they've been asked, answering that question for 15-20 for years so let's talk about covering the league because you learned your lessons as a young NFL beat writer covering the 49ers and then you went off to New York you did a little basketball at Newsday covering the Knicks but then you go over to SI or actually New York Times and then SI 
you're covering golf, but you're also covering the NFL as a league. And that's what's quite a dichotomy, right? Yeah, it's funny. You're so on the money. Like, I'd be so happy in the spring and summer because golf, it's like, it's all day games and you're going to the Masters and you're going to Hawaii for for the Century Tournament of Champions. And then I'd be a little grumpy in the fall and winter. I'd have to gear it up and prepare to deal with these these, Roman these, gladiators. These, you got to cover these Roman and these, gladiators. These, yes. these angry coaches and these angrier players. And but I had some good moments, man. I I, I realized that uh, like the Peyton Mannings of the world, how much they read the New York Times and Sports Illustrated and are aware, kind of of your job. Like one of my first stories, my first two features for the New York Times covering the NFL. One was on Peyton Manning, and I went to Indianapolis and, and got great time with Peyton. Well, let's talk about the Manning story. Yeah. What's the story behind the story? Yeah, the story behind the story was he, he was Peyton Manning at this time in his career, um, already kind of building this remarkable resume of stats, but trying to kind of make that next step and, and, and kind of get over this little bit of a knock, I'd say, early in his career, if I recall, coming out of Tennessee, Incredible stats, but didn't beat Florida. That was kind of the big story. Yeah, couldn't you know? win the big one, right? Couldn't yeah. win the big one. So, so that was part of it as well. Kind of like, where is Peyton Manning? This, this remarkable athlete, stats, son of of Archie, and I, it was a big piece. Um, but I was just so impressed with how Peyton kind of he kind of knew what I need. He's just so intelligent, not just in his film study. And I and I got his high school coach on the phone, if I remember, and. And just how hard he worked. But that was the, the crux of the story was he was like built this way in high you school. Said, you said was, he gave you a lot of time. What did you do? Yeah. So so there's like, as, as in most NFL facilities, there's like a zillion rooms in these facilities. And there's like, there's like an hour set of time, a set of uh, off between the, the, the beat writers and the players. And then there's often like these little side rooms where, if you're coming in to do a special project, say, you know, the NFL on CBS or Football Night in America on NBC, they get an allotted amount of time on like a Thursday or a Friday. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Craig Kelly, who was the PR guy um, in Indianapolis, knew I was coming, didn't really know me from Adam, but like set aside time where I had Peyton one-on-one by myself away from everybody else. Because for a lot of these players, Brady, Steve Young, even back in the day, Peyton, they speak one time during the week right. to the gathered media, and then the rest of it is you wait till Sunday. That has, so changed. I got, that has changed a lot since the 90s. Right? Okay, okay, yeah. Since I mean, the 80s. I mean, since the 80s is what I mean. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so back then, it was, so Peyton just gave, he gave me what I needed. I didn't feel rushed. We were in a separate room by ourselves, no media people hanging over us, no other reporters hanging around, and... Whatever I asked, he answered and gave me just good sound bites. It was just really, really, it kind of, it told me a little bit about him and how good he is and how smart he is. It also told me about the power of the times and and how uh, people respected that newspaper as the paper of record and knowing that it's a national paper that's going to be read like all over the place. And it was a similar, similar with Drew Bledsoe as well. He knew what you needed. Right. Yes. Yes. And he knew, he knew how what to I needed. It. Right. Exactly right. And and that continued, Todd, throughout my time covering him and Eli and Archie. Like I covered that Patriots Giants second Super Bowl in Indianapolis. It's all coming full circle now. And I called Archie 
on Monday of that week, before the game Sunday, I said, Archie, I'm writing a game story for Sports Illustrated. And as you know, Super Bowl week, it's all staged. The, the media day, you got these big booths and yeah, there's a zillion reporters. It's just, it's, it's controlled chaos, but, but it's hard to get individual stuff, like, like unique stuff. And here I am going to be writing a game story for Sports Illustrated and there's newspaper writers everywhere and TV cameras everywhere. So I called Archie. I said, Archie, listen, it's Monday. If you, can you just let me know what the rhythm of the week is like for Eli here? Mm-hmm. And maybe let's talk on Friday. Mm-hmm. And that would help me paint the picture should the Giants win. And even if they don't, it'll be a big part of this game story ultimately. And sure enough, I called Archie on Friday. And he just, like his sons, and Peyton especially, who's just a, a wonderful talker, he gave me insight. He said, Damon, okay, on Monday, Eli took the offensive line to St. Elmo's. They had yes. the incendiary and Indianapolis. You know, yes. shrimp cocktail. And, and it was a great night. On Wednesday, Eli came into the city where Peyton has an apartment. And it was just me and Olivia and Eli and Archie. And I think Cooper was there also. They had dinner as a family. And so he's just giving, he's just giving me little nuggets. And I think it's because, well, okay, I'm writing this for SI. And I've been, you know, that's now what, 2009. And I've been covering the NFL in a pretty high profile way going back to the late nineties a little bit, but especially since Oh two and like, you know, I had, I just had enough trust within the family. The game happens. The giants win. I'm right. I'm getting more anecdotes that night. I'm talking to such and such. I'm observing Todd. I see, you know, OCU when you're on the phone, you know, and he's talking to somebody in the locker room and he says, you know, we're going to take over the town. You know, we're going to burn the town down. <laughs> it just, and so that's a quote that I could use. And then there's Brandon Jacobs, this huge fullback slash running back. And he's got champagne. And he's like, these bubbles taste so good. And that's a quote. And then I find out that there's the post-game party. And this I had to ask the PR guys, uh, Avis Roper, for example, and Peter John Baptiste. And I'm saying, guys, can, can you get me into the post-game party? Right. And, you know, before the game, it's a maybe. And after the game, everybody's happy. Like, sure, why not? So I went to the party. All right, and all right. You're at a Super Bowl team's <laughs> victorious party. <laughs> what the hell was that like? It was it was unbelievable. It was, it was let's see if I can remember the name of the group. It was, I want to say... Lady Antebellum. Yes, thankfully I remember that. Lady, Lady Antebellum was performing in the Giants Super Bowl party because Eli knew them for many, many years. The Manning family did. It's mayhem. It's dark. Everybody's drinking. You know, the guys have their champagne flutes and, and they're having a great time. And, and this ended up being the lead of my story because Archie, or Archie is, at that point, he's gone. But Eli and Peyton walk into this party and they look like it could be Tuesday at, at an NFL facility. You know, the, 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 the shirt's right. unbuttoned a little bit, but they're not like, it's not like wild celebration for them. And I, and I kind of just wrote, that was my lead. Like Eli kind of slipped into this party where Lady Annabellum is, is, is singing. And he just, and then, and then my quote was something about him, you know, you know, we, we, we had a young team that we, that we could believe in. And it, it wasn't an electric quote, but the scene was good. And then Peyton, who had always given me stuff, knew I wanted to talk to him, and, and he had a beer in his head. I think they both might have had a beer, a light beer. I mean, they're 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 keeping it in the fairway, light even beer, this, you know, light, light beer, beer, even right. even in this post game party. And, 
And Peyton, and Peyton's saying, you know what? I hope my brother wins five Super Bowls, and I hope I win five too. And, and at this point, he had one Super Bowl, and this was Eli's second Super Bowl. And, and, and he just goes, people, and he and this is before I even ask the question, he goes, people think I would be jealous. You know, Eli's my little brother. I used to drive him to school. We used to talk every day and still talk every Tuesday about game planning. If he's playing the Titans and I played the Titans last year, I'm giving him everything I have, every bit of knowledge. You know, he's playing the Patriots. He doesn't even need my help. He beat him before. I mean, it was just that kind of stuff. And he, and he wanted to emphasize and he wanted to get out in the public that, hey, my little brother has two Super Bowls and I have one and I'm OK. Even if he's not OK, it was it was kind of like a, almost like a preemptive strike quote. From Peyton, but he was I just savvy. He was savvy. He about, was savvy. He knew what the story was going to be. He knew what the story. Oh, Peyton's jealous. How's Peyton right. going to bounce back? He he just wanted to put that out there immediately. It was almost as if he like hunted me down in that dark space in that hotel ballroom uh, post Super Bowl. That's interesting, and it all gets back to relationships too. I mean, yeah. you had developed that with Peyton and his family, and then it paid off for you to get the story. You actually were able to then put the reader. In yeah. the party where you had access to. I got one more for you. I got, sure. I got a, a Super Bowl. Uh, no, it's not a Super Bowl story. This is just a, a cover story for SI. They send me to to Eden Prairie to, to do a um, an Adrian Peterson story. And this is Adrian Peterson, Height of Power. And you'll remember this uh, as an Ohioan. Um, at season opener, they're playing the Browns. Of course they're playing the Browns, right? Of course they're, they're playing Browns. the they're Browns. Gonna lose and they're going to end up <laughs> on the cover. <laughs> so you're so you're 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 onto it. You're onto it. So he yes. knows. And I explained to Adrian. I said, "Listen, there are like three or four games going on." And so I go to his house. I'll take you back to the beginning of the week. I called his agent, and this is again. I don't know if this happens anymore. Maybe it does. Adrian has a chance to be on the SI cover uh, if he has a great game in the in the Vikings win. But there are other games, other season opening games, right. and. You know, it kind of he can't have like a fifty-five yard no touchdown game and be on the cover. So yeah, he's got to earn that spot. He's got to earn that cover when the SI cover is some serious real estate. So um, I go to his house to uh, to like do a, do a profile. You know, Adrian Peterson in Minneapolis, a man in Minneapolis, and I remember he opened up the refrigerator, offered me something to drink. It was like Muscle Milk or EA like EAS protein drinks. There must have been a hundred of them in the in the fridge, which is a scene. I'll never forget. Then we walk down into his basement. He has a purple, you know, pool table. And the <laughs> balls are all back then NFC Central teams. Like, the, 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 there's Packers and there's Bears and there's Lions and there's like all the, all the, all the pool table balls. The billiard table balls are, are all NFC Central teams. And, like, we're playing pool. And, and I, I use that as a, as a line in the story also. Um, but anyway, so finally it's game day and I've explained to him, like, you have to have a good game and I have to call my, you know, editor at halftime and see what other games are going on. So the first half, we're in Cleveland and the, the Browns fans, you know, hope springs eternal. It's the dog pound is full. It's season open. It's gorgeous day on the lake. It's sunny. Uh, and we're playing football and I'm up in the stands and I'm in the press box doing my thing. And first half, Peterson is like shut down. Like he's doing nothing. <laughs> Nothing. And I call my editor, Mark Moravik. I'm like, yeah, I guess this is not happening. He goes, yeah, he's got, what, you know, 35 yards rushing and nothing, nothing else. I go, yeah. That's not a I, cover. <laughs> it's not a cover. So we're thinking it's, prob it's probably done. Second half starts, kind of starts the same way. 
But then all of a sudden he takes this pitch to the left and I'll never forget it. And, and you've probably seen this highlight. He breaks a couple tackles and sprints down the left sideline and there's a defender coming to him and he unleashes this wicked straight arm, shoves the guy out of the way, sprints like 65 yards for a touchdown. That photo ends up being on the cover. But the funny story was Adrian at the end of the game runs into the locker they have the 10, 15-minute uh, cool-down period. Runs into the locker room past me as I'm standing outside the door. And he goes, did we get the cover? And I said, you, and I said, you got the cover. He got <laughs> like, the so cover. He, he had the presence of mind to be able to be a, a you know, badass running back and who's having a, a tough first half. Breaks this incredible 60-some-yard run. And, and he knows that he's done enough to get the cover. The Vikings win the game. And the cover, if I remember, it said Dominator was the, was, was the, was the, the headline. the Browns helped him. Of course the Browns, <laughs> the Browns helped him. But that was, uh, that was like, but that was the end of the heyday, I feel like. Uh, you know, when SI really, really still meant something. And the cover right. story really, really meant something. And, man, I had five great years at the Times and five great years at SI, being able to do things just like that. Peterson obviously was you know, one of the best running backs of his era, like 15,000 rushing yards, all kinds of honors, and he obviously had a complicated life off. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, the, you know, domestic violence. He yes. was suspended for child abuse, striking his uh, son with a tree branch, and I think yeah. uh, his he also had a two-year-old son die. Another man killed his son uh, that was, right. you know, the father of... Um, you know, the mom. Uh, so, you know, these stories are like you see him in the arena and then you see him out and it's complicated sometimes, right? It is. And in, in, uh, his upbringing with his father uh, and his relationship with him. And I thought his father might have done some time. If I remember, uh, you're right. I mean, these, and especially with the NFL, they're, they, they're asked to be so tough and to be so violent and then, you know, asked to be, normal members of society. And I've talked to players and heard anecdotes about players who struggle post-playing days with not having things to do on, on mm. Sundays. I, I heard a story, an anecdote about an ex-NFL linebacker who got a pit bull after his playing days and would get on the floor and incite the pit bull to, to like, try to bite him and tackle And they would, like, he, he would, like, literally shove and and tackle and fight with this dog, the human being, an NFL wow. ex-linebacker, wow. because he could not, you know, mimic and recreate that the intensity and the violence uh, of the game. And I tell you, Todd, I have three boys who love the NFL and we watch it and, and I watch it having seen the violence and know the toll and the concussion story going all the way back to the nineties and Steve young. And we don't let our boys play um, tackle football, even though we have a fantasy team, we each have a team and we love mm -hmm. the game. And it's, you know, it's a bit, it's conflicting, but yeah. we, we were told that if you let your boys get that, get that shoulder pads and helmet off, they won't take it off because it's a feeling that you get when you're 10 years old or 12 years old, you feel like a gladiator and you feel impenetrable and invulnerable. And, yeah, and football, we know football, through that. Football's like case. smoking. You know it's bad for you. Yeah. But it's addictive. Yeah, you know? exactly. Exactly right. 
Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with breslow the business of sports betting podcast football's complicated and you know another thing that's complicated is the olympics yeah. You know, there's so much good and bad that goes on at the Olympics. And I know that in 2004, you were in Athens, Greece, covering the summer games for the New York Times. And, and I was there, too. And I think we spent a little time getting to know each other over there in, in Greece. You have said that it's your favorite assignment ever. Why was the 2004 Athens Summer Olympics your favorite assignment? Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful question. And I do feel that way. Um, as someone who's traveled quite a bit and... Um, and a history major undergrad and kind of fascinated by the history of the planet, of the world, of geopolitical issues and the history of war and peace. Being in the Olympics is like the crystallization of all of those things, you know, in a, in a sporting venue. Um, but even, you know, beyond the, the, the track and field and the swimming, there are these stories of athletes coming from different parts of the world. And sometimes those different parts of the world, there's conflict going on in 2004. Uh, you know, we, we're still in a, in a state of, of, of grieving and, and healing from, from nine 11 and, mm. and still in the midst of, of the war in the middle East. And there was a little bit of that, even in Greece, you know, we're, we're, we're much closer to the middle East than we would be in, in, in the States. So uh, the, the safety protocols we had to do, we had to go through like a whole, you know, beyond just getting your passport stamped, you had to go through a whole safety and security protocol because of the time that it was in 2004. And, and just being around uh, journalists from around the world and athletes from around the world and kind of hearing the different languages and being in an IOC or international uh, media center and, looking around and seeing all of these different people and hearing these different languages, I, I felt inspired by it, meeting athletes and hearing their stories and, and kind of the joy and unbelievable pain. If you just missed off the podium, for example, I mean, there was a Japanese athlete who I think she might've won silver and she was so distraught and heartbroken that she didn't win gold. And she was just mm. so hard on herself. And I was just sitting there, you know, in the in that area, the mix zone, just like heartbroken for her as she was just basically beating herself up over over the close call. Um, but but it's those stories of joy and pain, the the fact that you had athletes from you know Iran and Israel who you know are always at loggerhead seeming, but they're suddenly in the same arena together. Uh, those things just fascinated me, and, and being in that kind of venue and environment in 2004, especially I, I, your eyes are wide open. You're a little bit nervous taking the buses here and the venues there. And it, it was just a very, very interesting time to be a, a sports journalist, especially being in that part of the world. 
I remember being at a soccer game. It was Iraq's first soccer game in the Olympics mm. that year. And obviously the war was going on. And I sat down in the, you know, the press box area. And you just heard this loud cheering going on. And I looked down, there's probably 300 you know, Iraqi men together just going nuts, just just cheering and going crazy about every moment. And I'm like, I'm going to go down there and see what this is all about. And I went into the middle of the pack of the fans. And of course, I couldn't speak their language, but I just got a sense of what this meant to them, the pride that they felt to be there, especially with their own home country at war. Mm. I remember thinking like, this is more than sport. This is more than sports. It sounds like yeah. a cliche with the Olympics, but when you are there and you're lucky enough to be there, you experience it differently. Um, and that's what you're trying to do as a journalist: is put the other people who aren't there with you in that pack of Iraqi fans with you, right? Such a great point. It's it's really bringing those stories home to the people who can't be there and. and what they can't see or feel on television and, and being in the arena for that moment. And I, I met some athletes and covered some events and, and, and saw, you know, Ruland Gardner comes to mind and, and, and some of these other athletes and, and just kind of telling their stories in a way uh, that really kind of brings that full color picture to the folks that aren't able to see it or experience it. And I can only imagine, and you think about those men there, you know, these are decisions of, of that, that are being made, you know, outside of their purview. And, and as war often is, it's 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 19 year olds and 20 and 21 year olds that are that are set off to, to, to battlefields and, and the complications therein. And just for that three week you know, period, I always feel better about the world, even though mm-hmm. I know it's temporary and I know it's sports. But I just I love seeing people come together. Um, I'm an optimist. As well, uh, you know, even even though uh, um, you know our, we have to be skeptical, I think as journalists, it's important to, to kind of make sure that we we hold the the, the people accountable, you know, the, the stakeholders, the, the 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 people that that are in charge of these events. Um, but I, but I still, in my heart of hearts, I'm an optimist, and when I see that kind of humanity, that diverse amount of people and languages in one place. you can't help but feel a little bit hope and a little bit better about about the planet. It's definitely unique. There's a unique energy there. And you mentioned the diversity. And the diversity that you see in the Olympics is not something that you see in the world of golf. Just never has been part of the game. And you show up covering it as a print reporter in 2002, and you arrive on the scene of golf, obviously as a black man, what was it like for you to go into this world that just did not have a track record of diversity? Yeah, I had some uncomfortable moments, uh, double checking of my media credential to make sure I was who I, uh, who it said I was. Really? Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And some, and some it's awful. Yeah, yeah. It's it's um, and some you know the, the unusual stare that you know that just kind of, you see the long stare you you kind of sense it especially early we're talking twenty years ago I mean now I've been on TV for ten years running my mouth and, and and people know me they didn't know me that that well back then and and I felt nervous and um and golf and I've said this before I think in some ways Todd Tiger Woods was the best and worst thing to happen to golf because the best in some ways was that this multicultural player was the best, wins the Masters by 12. But it also, golf can kind of pat itself on the back. Oh, look at us, look how, look how diverse mm. we are. The right. best player in the world and maybe in the history of the game 
you know, is African-American and Asian. Um, and it really kind of, in my opinion, it took the killing of George Floyd two years ago um, to really make the sport re-examine itself. And I can say that with full confidence because I spoke to people at the PGA Tour and PGA of America and USGA who were like, whoa, like what just happened? Everybody's sitting at home during COVID and they see this and it reminded people in golf that, you know what, Tiger Woods notwithstanding, what do the C-suites in golf look like? You know, what does the majority mm-hmm. of the, the playing membership look like? You know, the sponsors, you know, who are these companies? They're, they're not, we're, we're, they're no African-American owned businesses that are, you know, sponsors of events. They're like it, it, it forced the tour to look inward. And I had conversations, Todd, on the record and off the record with people at the tour and people at the PGA of America and USGA. And to their credit, and the tour has earmarked $100 million for diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. The USGA uh, announced they've re-upped uh, on their relationship with First Tee, doing these uh, idea grants, uh, 25,000 for 25 First Tee programs. Uh, and so I think it's getting better. It's slow. It's behind. Like baseball integrated in 1947 and, and golf had like a Caucasian only clause on the books into the 1960s. So they're like 16 years behind, you know, right. when Charlie Sifford finally got to play uh, on what is now known as the PGA tour. So golf's had more ground to make up. It was exclusionary for, for most of its existence. And I think that it's taken some very notable events outside of the game to kind of remind people that there's more work to do. I want to point listeners to a column that you wrote for uh, golfchannel.com. And that was in June of 2020 after George Floyd's death. And the headline on the column is, can I be both thankful and horrified? Can I? And it was such an outpouring of your heart and your own life experiences. Can you take us back to, you know, why you decided to put yourself out there in a personal way like that? Yeah, you know, I, I remember feeling in that time as we all were, and so many of us were just, were horrified and, and sad and upset. But I found myself in that time, we had a, had a television camera, I had a camera in my house because of COVID, we weren't going into the studio. But I was still doing television and going on the air and talking about birdies and bogeys. And I just, I'd be going to sleep at night and I could feel my chest was tight and my heart was hurting. And I'm like, why, why am I feeling this way? I'm like, I've got a great wife, great kids, wonderful job dream job, but I'm also a black man living in America. Can I, can I be both like thankful and like, can I love my country, but be mad at my country at the same time that this happened? Can I be thankful uh, and, and upset? Can I be, you know, patriotic, but a patriot who wants to see things get better. And so I said, you know, I, I started as an Instagram post, and then I asked my editors and, and producers, I, I want to write a column. And they, and they said, absolutely. And I wrote this column because I felt like I had to be transparent to the viewer and to myself and to my family, to my sons, as my dad was to me and my grandfather was to him about some of the challenges that black people can face. And I could be on television two hours a day, but I'm still a six foot three bald headed black man in America who's been mm-hmm. pulled over and who's been frisked and asked if I had drugs or weapons in my car, which I did not, and frisked for weapons, which I did not have, in front of my mom's house when I was like 19, 20 years old. And mm. people were like, well, wait a second, you're like on TV, you're, you're, you're famous, that, that happens to you? I'm like, yeah, that does happen and has happened. And I'm one of the lucky ones. 
where it didn't escalate to Eric Garner or Michael Brown or Trayvon Martin or right. James Byrd back in the day or George Floyd or Emmett Till. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that it, that it didn't happen, but I do get nervous if I get pulled over. Mm. My hands are tight on that wheel because I'm not on TV at that point. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a black man in a car in a nice neighborhood. And, and, and that means something to some people and it makes some people nervous, whether they know me or not. Or not. So I had a conversation with Jimmy Rollins about this after George Floyd. And he was a wonderful all-star, you know, World Series winner with the Phillies. And he said, I had cops escort me into, into stadiums and give me fist bumps and making sure our bus made it through. And then at the same time, like, I was at midnight, got pulled over in a nice car and had guns drawn on me. Like, are mm. these the same police? You know, so so those stories were important to tell. And I say this as someone with a, a cousin who's in the FBI, like like live law enforcement in my family. So I wanted people to know that, yeah, I can love my country. I can respect police officers and the job they do in, in FBI and CIA, but also like these are things that are real and sometimes scary. And you can be a patriot and you can love your country and be critical of it. I think that's what the beauty of America is that you can speak your mind and not worry about, you know, like in some places being put behind bars for 15 years because you said something against uh, state, local or federal government. So I had I could not be on television and saying, hey, you know, uh, Justin Thomas won by four while while cities are are being torn apart and families are, are grieving and, and people are hurting without speaking my truth. And it was a time in sports where Black Lives Matter, we saw some signs on basketball mm-hmm. courts and the choose love on the helmets and different things. We still see some of those things. And I just felt like I couldn't, I couldn't do my job and be transparent, which you should be on television and be yourself, which you're told you're supposed to be without being able to express this part of who I am. Um, and it's like this dichotomy of yes, gratitude and joy and optimism, but also tired of being, you know, 50 and having to prepare to have these conversations with my kids that my dad had with me and that his dad had with him. Well, it's a heart-wrenching column, and I applaud you for having the courage to put yourself out there like that. Your own life experience as a black man, how has it informed your reporting on golf for 20 years? Mm. Um, Golf especially, because it is such a, a lily white sport. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's in some ways it's allowed me to stand out. Like everybody knows who I am if I'm walking up to them for a soundbite because I'm just so different. I look so different. There have been a handful, uh, I think, of Cliff Brown, Pete McDaniel, um, Pharrell Evans for a time. You know, this is over 20 years. There just hasn't been that many. So being on television, especially the last 10 years, people – they know who I am. They know what I look like. Um, I, I think, and I think this of, of, of golfers, and I think of this of, as, of most people. I think most people are good people. I, I think that most people just want the best for their 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 kids and their neighborhood and their families. And I think golfers are no different. I mean, they make yeah. a zillion dollars and they're trying to get the ball in the hole and they play a difficult game. But I approach them as I approach anyone. I, I try to be empathetic and I um, I try to speak to them, you know, man to man or man to woman if I'm covering the LPGA. And sometimes we do get into topics, discussions on race. I've had some players want to, want to talk about that. I've, I've interviewed some players. I interviewed Kirk Triplett, who uh, 
he's a white man with a black son. He adopted a black child mm-hmm. right. and he put a Black Lives Matter sign on his golf bag on PGA Tour Champions, which is 15 over pretty conservative group of, of golfers. And he talked about getting some awkward glances. And he said, you know what? I, I have to, I have to have a different conversation with my son, Kobe. That's his son's name mm-hmm. that I do with my other children. It, it's just, it's sad, but it's kind of the way it is. And, and he wanted to say, I'm a white man, all, 60 years of age. And this is a conversation I had to have. So you know, when I'm, when I'm on the beat, when I'm doing my job, when I'm going to golf tournaments, um, I try to be who I always have been, which is honest, transparent, prepared, asking good questions, and being authentic. And, and that's golf, that's football, that's life, you know, for me. That, that's how I want to be perceived. That's how I want to behave. And right. that's how I want my reputation to be, whether I'm in a locker room or on the 18th green talking to somebody after they... Uh, put out for par. Well, you grew up in Los Angeles and Compton, and I'm sure when you were growing up, there just weren't many black golfers. You know, there weren't golf probably just wasn't part of your life. You know, there was Lee Elder and you know Calvin Pete, a couple guys, but but it's sadly there's still not many. You know, when yeah. you think about it today, and but at the same time, you mentioned that things are better, that things have changed, and you've seen it for 20 years, and so that still infuses you with hope, right? It does. It does. And, and I, I spent summers in Compton. My, my parents went to Compton High School. Uh, I lived in the San Fernando Valley, but but spent many a summer uh, roller skating, you know, on East San Luis, which is a street in Compton. And my, my, my late grandparents uh, lived in Compton, cousins in Compton. My parents were, were proud, class of 1963, Compton High School. So I have that in my background and also uh, the 818 San Fernando Valley as well, and golf just was not a part of my upbringing at all outside of a, a birthday party and going to play miniature golf somewhere. <laughs> yeah. um, my parents didn't play. If golf was on our television screens, it's because we were waiting for a basketball game to come on. Um, and it has been slow. It, it is an expensive game to play. Uh, the socioeconomics of the game kind of mirror the socioeconomics of the country. And if, you know, in most African-American communities, golf courses might as well be on, on the moon. They're just not accessible. It's not something that is readily in their, in their purview. Um, I do think the more outreach that the game does, the more that um, it acknowledges that things have to get better. There needs to be not just taking kids from their neighborhood to, uh, you know, a, a golf tournament one day and then taking them back. It's about legitimate, active proactive outreach into those communities and making the game look more like aspects of the African-American community, whether it's clothing or music or, or making a real tangible effort to say, we want you as a part of this game and growing this game. And it's a make term golf, we hear all the time. Make golf look more like America. Yeah, right? make it look more like America. And that means right. all aspects of America. Right. And really, not just that it's only for a certain segment. And I, and I think golf has sometimes struggled with that. And I do think post-2020 and post-COVID and George Floyd, that from what I've seen and been in those rooms and talked to a lot of people, that I, I feel like the game uh, is going in the right direction. Well, I think it's so important that you're on television and that you're out there because that we, need, we need that perspective. We need more of it. I appreciate that. I, I I've, can't tell you how heartwarming it is when I go to a golf tournament or 
go to an airport and I see a young person or, or, or a family or an old, you know, golf fan. And, and sometimes you get a, you get a young person of color. And, and I know that sitting in that chair on golf channel is valuable and important and that I don't take that job lightly and that role lightly. And, and I think that me being on that, on that show is, is an example of diversity and the growth of the game and, and making it look more like America. And, and I, I am appreciative of the seat that I, I sit in and cherish it as well and, and, and don't take it lightly that just me being on golf channel is a wonderful example of, of how the game has, has progressed and hopefully more uh, stories like that will be told as, as the years and decades roll on. You said Tiger Woods has been the best thing and the worst thing in many ways, and I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. Let's leave us with a sports story. Tiger Woods, the golfer, you've been around him for 20 years. You've been around him for the highs and the lows of this man's career. You know, one of the greatest athletes in the history of sport, American sport. Is there a moment that sticks with you of all the things that you've seen Tiger achieve during those 20 years that you're always going to recall him as Tiger Woods, the golfer? Yeah, gosh, it's been it's been a joy covering him. Um, I've been thankful that my time in journalism and golf journalism has really coincided with his as a player. I'm four years older than he is. He's from Southern California. I'm from Southern California. We root for a lot of the same sports teams, so it's been fun having moments outside the ropes to to talk about the Lakers or the Raiders or the Dodgers, um, poke fun at each other because he went to Stanford and I went to UCLA. And to see that side of him, athletically, it's been so fun to be in his world and to see someone who appreciates work as much as he does. And to like, I was actually, I got invited by his uh, foundation to host, along with him, his TGR Junior Invitational, first of his kind out in Pebble Beach a few weeks ago. And he saw me and he immediately starts, you know, busting my chops, which is what he's always really been about. He's, he's you know, in a lot of ways, still a big kid. His, his childhood was very unique. He was a star before he could walk. But I always think, I think back to the 2006 um, Open Championship at Hoylake, which had come on the heels of him losing his father. And he, and he, he wins a golf tournament hitting one driver the whole week. The, the sound of the strike of, of his golf ball is like nothing I've ever heard. And I've been around you know, Henrik Stenson and Justin Thomas and all these other great players. But to me, it's probably like he works harder than we even know. And he's starting to let people know, like, like little anecdotes of what it was like for him. Like there was a, a story told a few weeks ago at Pebble. And there was a gentleman who like works at the Pebble Beach company. And he's saying, Tiger, I remember in 2000 at Pebble, and you were getting ready for your resumption of the second round on that Saturday morning. And you were in the gym and you were working so hard. You were bouncing from the weight you know, rack to the bench, to the dumbbell rack. And you were just sweating and you had this athletic shirt on and your muscles were bulging. And then my kids walked up to you and asked you for an autograph. and You signed every autograph and you went back to the gym and you were lifting. And they were at the Pebble Beach gym. There's like a beach club there. And, and the guy said, Tiger, it just was such an example that you worked so hard. You were working out before you went out to finish your round and then to play 18 more holes that day. <laughs> and Tiger goes, well, I'd actually run three miles before <laughs> I got to the gym. 
And he looks out to the kids and he goes, kids, you know, you have to sacrifice. He says, Kobe used to tell me, and we're like, oh my gosh, so he's, he's, no, he used to talk to Kobe all the time. He goes, Kobe used to tell me, what are you willing to sacrifice to be great? What are you willing to give up to be great? Mm. And I was like, wow, I mean, no wonder this guy won 82 times in 15 majors. Because he knew that every time he arrived to a golf tournament, he had out-prepared, out-worked, and out-everything, everybody. Not to mention the great skills that he had and the wonderful hands and the fact that he'd been doing it since he was a toddler. But it wasn't an accident. You don't, you don't get to that point in your profession, in your endeavor as an athlete, just by God's grace. It, it, you have to put in the work. And Tiger was looking these kids dead in the eye and telling these stories about being a kid and walking three miles to school or skateboarding to school and skateboarding home and then going to play golf. And his parents said, you're a student before you're an athlete. And as good as an athlete as he was, and he ran cross country also, he had to have the grades too. And Tiger's face was just lighting up as he talked about work, work, and work. And it was a reminder to me that as talented as he is and as gifted as he is, and he might have a great golfing body, he has put in endless hours to be who he has become. And it was a reminder to me how lucky I've been to cover him. And it was motivating to me in my job to make sure that I do my job just a little bit better every day also. Well, it's a reminder, but it's also you weren't lucky, Damon. You put in your own work. You know, you've come a long way since I first met you. <laughs> when we were both just just inkstained wretches. Figure out where the locker room was. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you've uh, gracefully shared so many wonderful stories with us. I really appreciate it, and and I do uh, do have so much respect for you putting yourself out there and being willing to uh, you know keep issues on the forefront. Todd, I appreciate it. Uh, I've enjoyed. Uh, being friends with you and, and colleagues and sharing a lot of locker rooms and, and press rooms back in the day. And I'm, I'm so glad you reached out. We could catch up. And, and as I tell a lot of people, I'm an optimist uh, about this country. And, and, and I, I think that most people are, are, are really just trying to all row in the same direction and, and want the best for their, for their loved ones. And, and that's, that's, uh, that's really the, the, the crux of my message, uh, both uh, on camera and off. Well, Damon, it's a very important message, and thanks again for sharing it. Let's keep rowing, my man. Absolutely, Todd. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. 
The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 